Good evening, everybody. Tonight, we're going to be looking through uh, some portions of Ezekiel. Um, let me ask you this question. Who remembers what the Bible is about? Let's go big picture. Who remembers what's the Bible about? Who's it for? Who do you write it for? He wrote it for Israel. And what's it about? Israel. Are there any other countries in the world? Yeah. Okay. Why, why in the Bible can we learn about Babylon? Because Babylon had something to do with Israel. Why did we learn about Assyria? Because Assyria had something to do with Israel. We learn a little bit about Greece. Why? Because Greece had something to do. We learn a little bit about Rome because Rome had something to do with Israel. What do we learn about, um, let's say, uh, Botswana? Uh, nothing. What do we learn about the United States of America? Nothing, because there's not, during that period of time, there was no interaction between Israel and the United States of America. You're not going to learn anything about much, much of Europe, because it doesn't have an interaction with Israel. The only places you're going to hear about other countries is when they have an interaction with Israel. Does that mean no other countries have history? Not at all. Not at all. All other countries have a history. Some of it's written, some of it's oral, but all other countries have a history. And that history is recorded by them. It doesn't necessarily have inspiration. I shouldn't say necessarily. It's not inspired scripture at all. It's not inspired writings at all. But it is writings about their countries. So let's have a word of prayer. And we're going to go from there as we look at the scriptures and what they have to say about some other countries. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for your precious word, the Bible. Thank you for the way it works in so many people's lives. Thank you for its truthfulness, for its honesty, for its transparency, and for its difficulty. There's plenty of things in here that are hard for us to understand. We recognize that we did not live during the period of time this was written. So there's a lot of contextual things we don't have necessarily. Thank you for the history that has been given and kept for us that we might be able to have some concept of what people were thinking during that time. So we're asking just now, Father, that you'll open our hearts to understanding, that you'll give us a, a good grasp of what was going on during periods of time of history. Thank you now for what you're going to do and the way you're going to do it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let's start our study. We're going to be in Ezekiel tonight, but let's start our study at Genesis 10, shall we? Let's go back to Genesis 10. So all the way back to Genesis 10. You should never forget Genesis. Uh, it's in Genesis that you learn a whole lot about the rest of the world. And in Genesis 10, we start learning about the way the world came to be. All right? So... Genesis 10, we'll look at verse 1. Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. Now, why are these three guys important? Well, four, but the three, why are they important? How are we related to these people? Exactly. We are descendants of these three guys. Everybody in the world owes their existence to these three guys. So their families, whatever their family history is, is important to all of us because that tells us about who we are. So let's just take a look. We're just going to look at uh, maybe a few of these verses here. Let's look at number, verse number two. The sons of Japheth, so that's one of the sons of jo uh, Noah. The sons of Japheth were... Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kitim, Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, and everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now, notice how it says that. Everyone according to their families and into their nations. So they start out small. These started out just families. 
and their family then became more like a tribe. And as they got a tribal, they became more like a clan. And ultimately, where they're going to go, they're going to go from families to tribes to clans and ultimately into nations. They're going to be forming themselves and all that. Why is this important? Because these are the nations that are going to be divided in Genesis chapter 11. These are the nations that God is going to take. They all represent certain linguistic groups because these are the ones who are going to have their languages changed and God's going to divide them into groups. And as he's dividing them into groups, according to Deuteronomy 32, he's going to take some of them over here, some of them over here. He's going to move them all around all over the world. And as he moves them around all over the world, they're going to be given, each one of them, one of the sons of God to be in charge of them, a caretaker, if you would, someone who's going to teach them what they're supposed to do, going to teach them about the geography of the place, going to teach them about the plants of the place. When you go to a place, how do you know what's good to eat? Don't, don't, you, ever, don't you wonder who the first people were that said, I wonder if that right there is good to eat? Okay, uh, Uncle Jake died on that one, so that's not a good one to eat. Okay, well, what, what about this one right here? This is, that one, that, every time I eat that one, I start feeling real good. Ah, okay, so that's probably a, some kind of medicine. Don't you want to know how they got to do that? I mean, there's a lot of medicines that came out, of, a lot of foods that came out, a lot of things that came out of those, those times like that. Uh, it can be said that that's, that's what was taught to them by the principality over their palady. Okay, that's a prince over their palady. So they go to a region, they're living in that region, they have a prince that's in that region that's taking care of them. That was one of the sons of God. And that sons of God was teaching them things. The goal was they were to teach people how to come back to God. If you remember, the Tower of Babel was a place where they had rebelled against God. They didn't want his authority. They didn't want anything to do with him. They had rejected him, and his way of dealing with them was to divide them up with the sons of God, letting the sons of God be over them, and then the sons of God would teach them how to come back to God. He would, they would teach them how to act nobly with each other. They would help them with laws. They would help them with all, all kinds of understandings of morality and that sort of thing. Matter of fact, Put your finger right here a minute. Let's go to Psalm 82 just for a moment. Let's see the kinds of things they were supposed to teach them. Okay. Psalm 82. Psalm 82, verse 1 says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. Okay, that's, that's that divine council. That's the group of the sons of God gathered together. And he stands in the middle of them and he asks this question, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Okay, that tells me something. There was something going on among the people that they were in charge of that was bringing about wickedness. Everybody with me? Something's going on there. Now look what he says. Here's what I expected you to do. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. So there was some sort of teaching they were supposed to give them there. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are unstable. Because you did not teach them the truth, they don't know what's going on. They're wicked, and they're, they're behaving wickedly. And instead of you teaching them, you didn't judge righteously. You gave, you gave partiality to the wicked. Everybody see where we're at on this? Uh, questions or comments about, about any of that so far? This is, this is uh, uh, an important thing to understand because this is where all the mythologies come from. Okay? When, you, when you're looking at the Greek pantheon, when you're looking at the Roman pantheon, when you're looking at the Inca gods, when you're looking at the Mayan gods, that's this group. This group was supposed to be teaching them the right way to do things. But they started showing partiality to the wicked, and instead of being their teachers and caretakers, the, the people turned them into gods. Everybody with me so far? So this is where the, all those mythologies come from. This is what it was about. 
Why do we not know those mythologies? Why can you not look in the Bible and find those mythologies? Who's the Bible about? It's about Israel and the one true God, right? So he's not going to talk to us about how Baal came to be. He's not going to tell us about Marduk. He's not going to tell us about Ra. He's not going to tell us about Jupiter. He's not going to tell us about any of them. Why? They're not gods. They're not gods. They're lesser beings. They are the sons of God who were supposed to be teaching the people the right way to do things. They didn't. They've been in rebellion. So if you're following where I'm at so far, let's go back now to Ezekiel. Okay? And Ezekiel is going to explain something to us here. Let's go back to Ezekiel 38. We'll start right there. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog okay, of the land of Magog. Now notice what it says here, the prince of Rosh. Now I want to stop right here. Rosh is the word which means head. Uh, you've heard Rosh Hashanah. If the, the, the Hebrew festival day of Rosh Hashanah, Rosh is the head, Hashanah is the year. Rosh Hashanah is the head of the year, or it's the Jewish New Year. It's, it's what starts the whole year off. Rosh is the word for head, chief, principal, okay? Now, what happened while we were in the Cold War, and when an interest came back in prophecy once again, this word Rosh was taken to mean Russia. Russia. That's an incorrect use of this word. The, the, the people that are under question here are this, this Gog is the chief prince of those people. Now, what's the prince again? That's one of the sons of God who's over a palady, a, a region, over a group of people. This Gog was over the northern people. He was over, as he puts it here, he was the chief prince of, and that's what the prince of Rosh means, of Meshach and Tubal. But we're going to find out that it covered more than Meshach and Tubal because it's going to pick up in verse 6, it's going to include Gomer, and in verse 6, it's going to include Togarma. Have you seen those names before? Yes, right back in Genesis 10. When we were back in Genesis 10, these are the sons of Japheth and the grandsons of Japheth. Okay? So this is where that people came from. So what we're dealing with, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Togarma, these are all sons of uh, Japheth that moved to the north. When the Tower of Babel was split apart, they are peoples that moved to the north. What part of the north? They moved to the regions of Turkey. They moved to the regions of Ukraine. They moved to the regions of what we call Eastern Europe. That's all the regions of Serbia, Croatia, all those lands in there, all, uh, all the way up to Lithuania. So all the countries that you're reading about today in the um, news about with Putin and the Ukraine, that's this people. That's these people. Now, uh, there, there seems to be in some of Russian history evidence that they, they've come from Asia this way. Um, I don't know if that's accurate or not. I can just tell you this that what he's talking about here are all those people that live in what used to be called Asia Minor, that's Turkey, all the way up through Ukraine, all the way up into that whole area, all the way back over to, and Gomer is the former people that became Germany. Now, here's what we can tell you about the history of those peoples. They are a warlike people. They have fought each other for centuries. They have battled with each other. They have fought back and forth upon borders, upon resources. All of that's been going on for years. You can find that in their own history. You follow where we're at? That's why you're not going to find it in the Bible. They already have their history. 
they have it written there. You can read all those histories. You can see what is the history of Gomer? What is the history of Togarma? What is the history of uh, all of those countries who were a part of that? You can find that all out. Did they have anyone that was over them? Yes. Yes, they did. They had a number of, quote, gods that were over them. They had a number of um, beings that they worshipped and were led by. That's all found in their mythologies and in their history. That's why you're not going to find it in the Bible. Why had they not had anything to do with Israel? They had no reason to deal with Israel. Why? Because they had all of their own region. You remember, Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world. There was really not much reason to be messing with any other countries when you've got all of Europe that's yours, all of that breadbasket that's yours. There's not much to be had in Russia. Russia's not a, a great place. It's got some oil reserves. It's got some natural gas and things like that. But there are long stretches where there's not anything. It doesn't do much. It's really not of much value. Um, it's believed that Putin, part of what he's trying to do is make sure all the gates to his country are closed. You see, his country, because of the vast expanse, it, it can be conquered pretty easily by vehicles now if you get through the gates that can get you there. That's why we always had army bases and air force bases in that section where all the gates were because we knew that's the way they could come back through. So we guarded those gates ourselves to make sure they didn't come through those passes, bring their tanks in, bring their missiles in, bring all that other stuff in. So that's why that's such a hotly contended zone. But notice this. It's always a hotly contended zone. It didn't need to bother with Israel because they had each other to fight. They could go ahead and steal all the things from one another. It looks like, from what I can see uh, in studying the histories of th those different peoples, most of it somehow gets a start in India. It moves from India back over into that area, so it looks like there was a group of people that left not only to go to that region, but they left from India, settled in Afghanistan. This is going to be the forerunner people who are going to be known as the Celts, the Galatians, and the, uh, the Gaul that is France. France and Germany and all that, that region in there. That, those people seem to have come from India, and they teach the same kind of reincarnation you'd find in uh, Celtic Irish materials. Um, even among the Norsemen, uh, where you have uh, Thor, and Odin as the major gods there, get, get the picture, that's the principalities of that people. Am I stretching that, stressing that enough so you can see what we're talking about? That's the principalities of those peoples. That's what it's about. And what you had with Gog and Magog, they're doing these battles with each other. And what God is saying was, this has gone on for a long time. Matter of fact, uh, let's, let's turn just for a moment at Revelation 17. Revelation 17. We pick up here, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, guys, what we're about to see, this harlot that sits on many waters is an old lady, but she looks young. She's an old lady who's been about a business for a long, long time. Okay, so here's what it says. Uh, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth are made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. That, that's the way the beast looked. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, 
Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now, let's go on. It says, he's, let's find the meaning of the woman and the beast. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. So that beast is the one that we know as Antichrist. Now, notice where he's been. The beast you saw was, so he, there's this, this is somebody who was alive years ago. He is not. He's not on the earth right at the time of this and will ascend out of where? The bottomless pit. So whoever the Antichrist is, isn't just someone that's going to be born here now. It's someone who's already lived before. Ever see where I'm coming from? And he's coming back. He's coming out of the bottomless pit. And he's going to go on later to perdition. That's why it's not good for us to speculate about who. Uh, is it, is it uh, Reagan? Is it Trump? Is it uh, Kissinger? Is it, and you can name a whole host of peoples. Is it Zelensky? Is it Putin? You can go through a whole host of peoples like that. This guy is a human that existed before that's coming back out of that bottomless pit. And he's the one who's going to be there. Everybody see what I'm talking about? That's, that's a, a, an interesting thought to think, is it not? Because we've always been thinking this is someone that's going to come from Israel, this is someone's going to come from Rome or whatever else. No, he's coming out of the bottomless pit. Let, let's go on. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So he's alive, but he's not here now. That's what it's saying. He was years and years ago. He's not right now, so you don't see him right now, but he is. He's still alive. Uh, it goes on to say, um, here's the mind that has with him seven heads. There's the seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. He's telling us that these are all going to be kings who are part of great world empires. Now, let's go over to verse 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are what? Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So when this harlot is sitting on these waters, what's she sitting on? People, right? She has been um, inspiring, motivating people to be about conquest because she has a great hunger. She wants to have all this riches, all this wealth, that sort of thing. So she's been motivating peoples for centuries. Everybody see where I'm at on this? So this is the one who's been motivating Napoleon Bonaparte. This is the one who's been motivating Hitler. This is the one who motivated Nebuchadnezzar. This is the, if you're seeing where I'm coming, name a conqueror. And this is the one who motivates them. This is the one who's behind them, giving them a desire. Oh, no, they're going to do the conquering. That's why it's called fornication. They're not marrying her. They're just getting to be a part of her. They're just listening to her. They're just becoming her partner. And she's motivating them, conquer more, conquer more, take more. I want to be robed. I want to be rich. I want to be. And she does not care which group that is. Now, if you can take that, move that all up to that northern group of that is called Gog and Magog, the ones motivating, the one motivating all of them has been this one. All of them have been conquering each other, slaughtering, murdering, doing whatever was necessary, abusing whatever they had to do because she wanted more. And they were going to be beneficiaries of it. Matter of fact, uh, let, let's look and see. Uh, the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, let's see if I want to find something else here that explains something even more. No, I, I think that'll be an, enough for right now. 
But she's the one motivating these groups of people. She's inspiring them to be about the business. And the principalities that are with them are giving them the extra power to do things they want to do. More conquest is coming. So you're going to have lots of dead people, lots of conquered people, lots of human trafficking going on, lots of commerce set up because she's wanted that stuff. Everybody follow where I'm at? That's been going on all this time while God's been dealing with Israel in this in the Bible. So while God's dealing with Israel, Assyria is dealing with Israel, Babylon's dealing with Israel, Egypt's dealing with Israel, Greece is dealing with Israel, Persia's dealing with Israel, uh, Rome is dealing with Israel, all of those are having special dealings. While all of that's going on, there's business going on in China. There's business going on in Africa. There's business going on in Europe. This Gog Magog group is having all this conquest, war, and all kinds of stuff that's going on there. And here over in this country, in this continent, there have been conquests and things going on. Incas, Mayans, Comanches, all of them doing great conquest of one another, usually for Land, food. I mean, it's it's very logical. Uh, the uh, the Sioux, the ones we call Sioux. Uh, it's not Sioux's not the proper name, but what whatever. They didn't live in the plains. They lived in Minnesota. That's their original place. The Ojibwe came in from there. They're also called Anishinaabe. The Anishinaabe came in from there and found food, and they outnumbered the Sioux. They drove the Sioux out of Minnesota, and the Sioux kept moving across the plains looking for food, looking for something. They found the buffalo, and they moved the crow out. They moved the Cheyenne out. You follow where I'm coming from? Every group of people has been moving everybody else around for some time. And it's always been their principalities and powers that are engaging them, that are taking care of them. That's what's going on with Gog and Magog. Then Gog and Magog are going to leave their territory, and they're moving over to this continent, the North America and South American continents. They're going to move over here and do the same thing over here they'd been doing in Europe for years. You ever see where, where we're coming from? That's what's been going on for years. God's having a judgment of Gog and Magog, and that's what Ezekiel 38 and 39 are about. They came to the North American continent. They aren't trans- where do you see that? Yes. Yes, because we're the European background. That's where Gog and Magog came. Gog and Magog had been doing this conquest stuff, and you get that not from biblical history because it's not in biblical history. Why? Because it's not got anything to do with Israel. It has to do with what they did. So as you read German history, Scandinavian history, Celtic history, French history, as you read all of those, you begin to see this is where Gog and Magog kept moving west. And as they moved west... They ultimately came to this con- this continent here, and they're doing that. Yeah, uh, not so much. No, that this is this is going to be more the fifteen hundreds, sixteen hundreds, seventeen hundreds. We're living in the uh, what I want to say the interest of the principle they established in the fifteen hundreds through the eighteen hundreds. Yes. Yes. And it's, it's this lady that motivates them. You know, I need this. You need the oil. You, you need the riches. You need the wealth. Um, so I, I'm sorry, Jeff. I probably should be repeating what's going on there. It's, it's hard. Okay. Um, 
So what Jerry's saying, he can see what we're talking about here, that Gog and Magog have been moving across, but Gog and Magog are still in that area. You follow where we're coming from? This is the originators. These are the ones who started this thing, and they're a very warlike people. I think you ought to be able to see that as you look at what Turkey's doing today, what's going on with Ukraine, what's going on with Russia. These are all people who are coming from the far north. Matter of fact, uh, let's, let's, look, um, let's go back to Ezekiel 38 just for a moment, and let's see if we can pick up a little bit about what he's saying because there's some really, well, let me, I'll say it this way. Because we don't live 4,000 years ago, because we don't know what everything was 4,000 years ago, we've got to try to get ourselves back into that context as much as we can. What were they thinking? What's he writing about at that time? And part of what we're going to be looking at is something that, that um, well, let me read this. Uh, let's go to 39. Listen to what he says. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, Gog, the prince of Rosh. So that's, that's, again, that's chief prince of Meshach and Debal. I will turn you around and lead you on. I'll bring you up from the far north. See that word, far north? And bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand. Now, let me stop before I go ahead and get to the actions he's going to take against them. It's the far north. They have been uninterested in Israel. They've not needed Israel. And unless God does something, they're not going to be coming to Israel. It's God is going to put hooks in their jaws and turn their heads to Israel. Why? Because Israel is his country. Now, Follow, follow where I'm at here. This, is, this gets a, a, little, a little complicated after a while, but follow where I'm at. God assigned people their place to live, right? Acts 17, 26 says that he determined their boundary and their border and their times. So that land belongs to them. Why is he jealous for Israel? Because that land belongs to him. That is his wife's home. And unless somebody's having some sort of dealing with that home, he's dealing with someone else's property. If all these principalities, they have property that's been assigned to them, and all these ethnic groups have property that's been assigned to them. You say, wait a minute, God's, God rules over all. Yes, he does. And he honors what he said. He said, that's your country. That's where you live. I will honor that. But in this country, in this Israel, I am the Lord. There is no other God. Okay? And I will be honored here. You guys out there are not gods either, but I have assigned you that territory. That's where you're to live. And he's going to honor that. So in order for him to judge them, what's he doing? He puts hooks in their jaws, turns around and says, look at this country. This is my country. What do you think of it? It's rich. It's bountiful. It's got all kinds of things in it. We've not been there before. Let's take that one. That, does that make, I know it's kind of crass to say it, or uh, common to say it that way, but that's what's going on here. He's putting hooks in their jaws. He's having them turn around so they're looking at it. You say, is this about the Russians? Let me, let me stop and say this. It doesn't say which it is. I don't know that at the time this is written, there's any such group of people known as the Russians. I know that there is Gomer, Togarma, that there is Meshach, Tubal, there's Medan, there's Jathan, there's all of those, and they're someplace. I don't know how many of them went north. I don't know any of that. But here's something I want you to consider with me as we talk about north. Look with me to uh, Isaiah 14 just for a minute. Isaiah 14. 
Isaiah 14, 12. Let's pick up there. Isaiah 14, 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. See that word congregation? See anything like that before? It was in Psalm 82. And in Psalm 82, the congregation represents that uh, sons of God divine council. So what does he say? I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. Now what does he say? On the farthest sides of the north. North. This idea of the north is that uh, the word that's used for north is called saphon. And saphon means that which is hidden or dark. Um, I think it was Aristotle. Okay, I always get the philosopher mixed up. Aristotle, Socrates, or Plato. One of those guys talked about the people of the north. He thought there was a great people like the Atlantis people that lived in the north. He thought that's where you would find it. So if you went to the North Pole, that's where you'd find this great phenomenal people who had something akin to Atlantis. They were the maximum civilization. They were the important people. And he talked about that. And we we write that off as something that's unimportant. However, I want you to get this. Satan wants to be on the north. So let's look further at what he says. He says, on the farthest sides of the north, I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll be like the most high. Yet, God says, you should be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. This is Lucifer, the son of the morning, who is looking to be up there. The word north means hidden, dark, unknown. So when God's talking about these people that he's going to draw from the north, he's talking about a people who are not known by Israel, who are hidden from Israel. Why? Israel's not had dealings with them. They've not had to deal with them. They've got their own thing going. They've got a broadband that they can go all the way from China all the way across into uh, the uh, Great Britain, France, and all that. They're not needing anything to do with Israel. But God wants to judge them, so he's putting hooks in their jaws to bring them against Israel. And they're a hidden, dark people. And I've got this strange perception that Gog is chief among all of those people. He's the God that's, or he's the um, principality that's worshiped and motivates most of the people in those northern regions. All right. Comments or questions about what we're, what we're looking at so far? I don't think it's Satan. Uh, and and I'm beginning to agree with Dr. Heiser on this. Satan is a descriptive term. It's not his name. It's like saying uh, Jehovah Shalom. Shalom is a descriptive word, not his name. When you put them together, it becomes his name. Why does it become his name? Because Jehovah's with it. Jehovah's his name. His name is likely Lucifer. And each time that you find the word Satan, in the, the Old Testament scriptures, it's always got a, an article with it. He is the Satan. You, you don't say this is the Larry, unless we want to mean, make sure that we mean the only Larry that ever was, the one that's most extraordinary and rare, the Larry. But we don't usually say that about this is the Sheila. We, we just say simply Sheila. And Satan does, is not, he's given the, the title the Satan. He's the trickster. Uh, the the one who fools people. He's the the liar. Uh, the so it's a more descriptive term, much like Shalom would be there. So um, he is properly, I think, called Lucifer, son of the morning. Um, I I think it's Lucifer. Yeah, and whether Gog is Lucifer or not, I don't know that. This principality, whoever Gog is has taken upon himself more authority than any of the others of the north. 
He is Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Rosh Aram, chief prince of Meshech, Tabal, and ultimately Gomer and Togarma. So, what what do you think of that? Is that Yes, it's set, it's, the question is, is that setting up a hierarchy? Yes, there already was a hierarchy. And what you're having now among all those principalities and powers, how do you rank up? How do you get more power? You get more power by conquering this one, conquering that one. If, if your people now have to submit to, to this one, if Baal is able to overrun Marduk, then Marduk has, has to be a vassal of Baal, and Baal becomes a one step higher than him. He becomes a little more important, a little more powerful than the other. If someone overthrows Baal, then now you've got another one-upsmanship in the whole thing. So that's how you're, you're ranking up as far as power goes. But it's kind of a vain thought, is it not? Because where are you going to go with that power? Ultimately, all power belongs to God. So ultimately, no matter how many shifts you make among the, uh, if you become the best one on death row, uh, how how much have you really gained? You know, I'm I'm the number, I'm the most invaluable killer on death row. Okay, you're all where? That's right, death row. What's going to happen to you? Yep, you're all going to die. Can you die a more powerful death? than the guy who's the least serial killer on death row? No, dying's dying. And I think that's part of what he wants to get to about what happens to Satan. You, you're, you really think you got up there so high, yet what I'm going to do is make you like the lowest Gentile. You'll die the same way. and Your death is the same. All right, let's go back then to Ezekiel 38. Let's pick up with verse 14. After he talks about all the alliances that uh, whoever these northern people are going to be, and I'm not saying it's not Russia. I, I, I don't know the, an identification for who these people are. I know that they are Meshech, Tubal. I know that they are Gomer, that they are Togarma. I don't know what is Russia or not Russia. Here's some, if I can just say, practical problems with it being Russia today. Russia's got some demographic issues. Some of those demographic issues are, are real simple. Because of their abortion policy and because of their involvement all around the world using their soldiers in different places, they lost a lot of people in Afghanistan. Okay? Uh, matter of fact, that's part of the reason they withdrew from Afghanistan. You, you've only got so much of an army. You run out of 18-year-olds if you kill them all off when they're nine months old. And after a while, once you kill off that many people, you haven't got a lot of people 18 years later that you can pull from and have an army from. That's what they did to themselves. Now, here's the problem they've got with Ukraine right now. They have enough people to conquer it, but they don't have enough people to hold it. That's a real problem. You, you, even seeing the way they logistically handled that 40-mile uh, caravan on its way to Kiev, running out of gas? You, you follow where we're at? You, if you can't supply logistically what you have, then you really are not as powerful as you think you are. doesn't matter how great those tanks are. If they run out of gas, they're dead in the water. A good anti-tank missile can take out a nice little tank because it's just sitting there. Everybody see what we're talking about? So I see a demographic problem and a logistical problem with how this Russia by itself is going to come down on the land. But I can see how a group of people from the north that are now running out of food, running out of energy, might very well see that to the south we could pick up some food, some energy, and could very easily have hooks put in their jaws to turn their, their heads that way and say, let's move down there. There's more food there. We, we're going to face a pretty serious food issue coming days. 
we're going to face a pretty serious financial issue in coming days. Things are going to fall apart. We've been pumping too much money into this economy that has nothing to back it up, and that pretty soon that big bubble is going to burst, and when it does, all of us, uh, it really is not going to matter how big your investment has been, if your investment has been $45 million, and that's what you've got to retire on, and it's all gone, you're not any better off than the guy who, does, who had $2 left to retire on. You follow where we're at? And even if you haven't and there's no food on the shelves, where do you go? If there is no fuel to, take to get the trucks from one place to another, where do you go? Well, let's, let's pick up in Ezekiel 38, 14. Therefore, a son of man prophesy and say to God, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses and a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my... Now stop just a minute. I know there's always a big discussion that goes on between sovereignty and free will. Can I say it really looks like sovereignty and free will are a cooperative effort? Let's take a look at this just for a moment. Here is, in verse 15, this is the will of uh, Gog. You'll come from out of your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you. They're willing to do that. But watch what he says here in verse 16. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be against the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I'm hallowed in you. So who's bringing them? They're doing it and he's bringing them. Right? Are you you following where we're at? It's a cooperative effort. God's taking people what they want to do and he's giving them to do it. They wanted to conquer. They wanted to be able to have more materials. So because they wanted to have it, God motivated them to look at Israel. Why? Because he's planning to judge them. They're coming against his land, and he's planning to judge people that come against his land. Let's go on further. Um, Verse 17. This was a little more difficult because it says, Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? I looked all over to find where these prophecies are. And I can find general prophecies, like Joel chapter 3 talks about, all this group of people that God's going to bring into the valley of decision. He's going to have, it's going to be the, the great Armageddon. So that's caused many people to say, okay, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is Armageddon. I don't think it is Armageddon. I think it's before Armageddon. I think this is something that's going to set Israel up as a world power because they're going to, this this group is going to be destroyed on the mountains and they'll be burying things for seven years. That would not make sense if it's coming as Armageddon, which is at the end of the tribulation, and now they're into the millennium. They're still burying things. How would you have that, uh, I'll, I'll say garbage, left on an earth that's just been cleansed with fire? You, you, you follow where I'm at? Because what's supposed to happen at the end of the tribulation is that God's purifying the earth with fire. Second Peter chapter 3 says he's going to burn it all up and there's a new heavens and new earth. I can't see how a new heavens and new earth is going to have the garbage from the previous world left for Israel to burn for seven years into it. That's why I think this event takes place before the tribulation. I don't necessarily say it's a rapture thing. I'm not, I don't, I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying I think it takes place before the tribulation so that the tribulation is the seven years of time that Israel is still burying, burning all this equipment, burying all the dead they find. That's what's going to take place there. Thoughts or comments? Anybody got any thoughts you see there? 
Now, look, any time that you are speaking prophetically and you're, you're trying to understand prophecies, the risk of being wrong is great. So, when, when, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want you basing your hope on speculations done by this pastor or any other pastor or a speaker. I'm telling you what I see the possibilities as. I'm telling you what God has saying in his word, but I don't know that the details are exactly like this. Does that make sense? I just, I want to be cautious about my certainties about the future. I don't, I don't have those. I, I can be certain of this. God is going to judge the world and Jesus is coming back. I can stand flat-footedly and say, that will happen. And I can say, challenge that. And I know that you can't. I know that you won't. The details of how that's done, we're reading in the book of Revelation. We're trying to see what are some of the details of how that takes place. But I'm admitting there, I can be wrong about that too. Fair enough? We just want our hope built in what the Word of God says. All right? Now, let's go back to Ezekiel again at 38. Again, let's pick up on verse 18. It will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. Why is his fury showing his face? What are they doing? They're coming against Israel. Now his fury shows in his face. All right. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath, when I have spoken, I, or I have spoken, surely in that day there should be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, and all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. That's going to scare everybody. That's how great that earthquake is. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence of bloodshed. I will rain down on him and on his troops and the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself. I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. There is great confusion coming at this time. Whenever this battle takes place, whenever they're, they're coming down on the, the mountains of Israel, now they have assaulted the land of Israel and God's fury is coming back. And as that fury comes back, there is grand confusion. I don't know if you, I, I've never been on a battlefield. I've, I've been in uh, paintball. Uh, yeah, I know. That's, I've, I've been in Nerf battles, but paintball hurts a lot worse than, than the Nerf did. So in paint battles, I recognize this. There were times that you're supposed to guard a particular place, and then all of a sudden paintballs go flying around, and you're flying paintballs back at somebody. You're not even sure who you're shooting at. You know what I'm saying? Take that sound. Take that, that whole matter of firing projectiles at one another. Add to it the volume of explosions going on that are assaulting your ears that when that explosion happens, you lose your hearing for about, what, 15 seconds or so. You don't have hearing anymore. It's all blocked out. How do you talk with each other? How do you understand where did that come from? Where do I need to get to? When there are bullets still firing at you, this time you can't hear. You can't hear the explosion of the rifle because your ears are blocked up with the, and now you've got the noise and the confusion that's going on from an earthquake that just shook up everything, from all kinds of confusion going on. People started shooting, and once bullets started firing, you are firing back at your own people, and you don't even know that's who you're firing at. You follow where I'm coming from? So that's the confusion that's going on here. That's why they're turning on each other. Then add to that, you've got fire falling from heaven. You've got hailstones falling from heaven that weigh a whole lot, and they're crushing people. A, f a natural disaster is taking people out, and you're dying. And, and you're, you're walking, running along with a guy, and either he gets shot, you run along with another guy, and a hailstone busts him. You've got fire that's coming down. Another guy just caught fire in front of you. You see the confusion that's going on with that? That's what's destroying them here. 
And that's what God is going to bring on Gog and Magog, who have a centuries-long, even millennial-long history of violence against each other. Are you, are you seeing where I'm coming from? Violence against each other. They have been conquering each other, killing each other, destroying each other for centuries. And God has left them alone. Now, he sent emissaries into all those countries. He sent what we call missionaries. He sent them there to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some people were saved out of those groups. Sometimes it changed the way countries behaved. But you're not ultimately going to change the warlike environment that goes on with all the nations that are around you. You're still going to have some of that going on. And you have to decide, do we fight back or not? Well, let me go on with you here. Uh, Let's pick up. What he says he's doing this for is that, verse 23 of 38, Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself. I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Here's what he's after. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. That's his goal. That's his goal. Why would he need that? Because they've been in the north country fighting around with each other, worshiping whatever gods they have out there, doing the things they like to do, doing the violence against each other. They did not know he was the Lord. He brought emissaries to them. He shared the good news with them. Now he's done this action here that they may know he's the Lord. All your violent activity that you thought you were going to do, you didn't get to do. Hailstones took you out. Earthquakes took you out. Fire took you out. And none of it came from any human source. It was all coming from God. That's going to happen to them. And at the same time, in Israel, who felt highly vulnerable seeing this huge army attacking them, Israel's going to know the Lord is God. Now, put that together and consider if at the same time God produces 144,000 evangelists and two great witnesses in Israel, and they begin to explain, you know what happened here. That was the Lord. You know you have been delivered by the Lord. The Lord is calling you back to himself, and they will now know God is the Lord. And all of the... the um, unbelief that has been before, they'll leave behind them, and they're going to trust God. Let's go to 39, and here's, he gives us more details of what he's going to take place. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, Gog, prince of Rosh, or the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then here's, here are eight steps that take place from this. And he tells us, this is what I'm going to do. Number one, I will knock the bow out of your left hand. So that means the instrument with which they were going to fire that projectile, this bow, that's gone. In their right hand, they still have arrows. And this is what he says. Then I'll knock the bow out of your left hand. I'll cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. So what did he do? He just disarmed these armies. Just disarmed them. Go on to number four. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel. In other words, you're going to die. You and all your troops and the peoples who are with you, I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. So they're going to fall on Mount Israel. He's going to feed them to the animals and the birds of prey. He goes on in verse 5, You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God, and I will send fire on Magog on those who live in security in the coastland. Where are those coastlands? That's all the other lands that are outside of Israel. That would be us. You follow what? That's this continent as well. That's going to be the African continent. There is going to be a move at that time that sets a fire on all of the, the nations of the world. So this, this, he's sending fire there. 
Alcinfaro Magog are those who live in security in the coastlands. So these are people who didn't come up against uh, Israel. They didn't come up against him to, to do this battle, and he's going to send it now to them as well. He says, then they shall know that I am the Lord. What's his goal for doing it? That they may know I am the Lord. All right. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Surely it's coming. It shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. That's a major day. Now, again, I can see why people would call that Armageddon because that would be a great last battle. But I think because it doesn't involve all the nations of the world, it involves only those of the far north. It didn't deal with China. It didn't deal with that huge uh, army that's coming against them. It didn't deal with those. It dealt with one group of people, the people of the far north. That's why I don't think this is Armageddon. I think this is a battle that's fought before the tribulation. Can I be wrong? You betcha. You betcha. All right? Let me go on further. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears. They will make fires with them for seven years. Again, I think that's the tribulation. They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any from the forest because they'll make fires with the weapons and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them, says the Lord. It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel the valley of those who pass by east of the sea. And it will obstruct travelers because there, will, there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore, they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them. And in order to cleanse the land, indeed, all the people of the land will be burying and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of search party, I, I, I'm not going to read any more of that because it's simply saying that they got a lot of people they're hiring now to go out, find all the dead people, bury those things because it's, it's, it's a hazard. Then he gives a, quite a 17 to 20, he gives quite a song and a poem that he is writing to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Listen to this. Assemble yourselves and come. Gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal. He's calling what he's doing there a sacrifice, okay, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, of all the fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, with all the men of war, says the Lord God. I can see why people would say that's Armageddon because that's the same description that's given in uh, um, uh, Revelation 19 about Jesus' return. What's missing? What's different in this one? No Jesus. No Jesus. If it was Jesus, if this was about Jesus' second coming, you would see Jesus there. And that's not what you're seeing. This is not the mouth of Jesus whacking up all his enemies, as Armageddon talks about. This is the enemy shooting each other. This is fire destroying them. This is hailstones destroying them. This is earthquakes destroying them. See where we're at? I think it's a different situation. Well, let's see what happens then. Israel is restored to the land. I'll set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I've laid on them. So they're all understanding now. Israel has been judged. And so the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness, according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. Now watch what happens here. Now 
He says in verse 25, I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. After they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness of which they were unfaithful to me when they dwelt safely in their own land and no one made them afraid. So he's saying back at the time when they should have been ashamed, they were living in the land. I was taking care of them. I was providing for them. And what did they do? They got in bed with Baal. What did they do? They got in bed with Ashtoreth. What did they do? They got in bed with the, the gods of the Assyrians. They got in bed with the, the, the gods of the Babylonians. Instead of being faithful to me, this is what they did. So that's what they had done. Now he says, they've understood that. They've confessed that. He said, when I brought back them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. So he's going to bring them back to their own land. You follow where we're at? This is a restoration of Israel that's following this battle. I don't think that's the millennium. I think that's coming back to the land where they're going to face the first three and a half years with the two witnesses and the 144,000 uh, witnesses that are sharing the gospel with them. All right. Well, that's my long-winded speech for tonight. Father, thank you so much for letting us be here tonight. Thank you so much for the Word of God. Thank you for what you're doing in each one of us. We want to be a faithful people to you. We want to know you. We want to trust you fully. So help us with that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.